0: I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Today we will be studying 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And uh, and the title of our message is Genuine Gospel Faith. Genuine Gospel Faith. And so if you will, uh, follow along in uh, your copy of the Bible as I read these verses. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, And displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. You tell us in your word that, uh, that your word is living and active that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it pierces into us. And so, Father, our prayer today is that we would not reject the activity of Your Word in our lives. Father, instead, may we welcome it. May we expect Your Word to be active in us. Removing uh, that which doesn't belong, removing uh, sinfulness, exposing our sin, leading us to repentance, Father, and and encouraging faith in us, faith in you, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that, that your word is active in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that as we anticipate the activity of your word in us, Father, we pray that we would be submissive to your Spirit's work in us today. Father, may you be honored and glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which we have spent several weeks studying, if it could be described as Paul's defense of the genuine, genuineness of his gospel ministry to the Thessalonians, which I think we could describe it as that, and we have, then verses 13 through 16 of chapter 2 could be described as Paul's thanksgiving for the genuineness of the Thessalonians' saving faith, the genuineness. Of the Thessalonians saving faith. Paul here in this passage is continuing to reflect on his time with the Thessalonians. Remember, he was with them. He's not now. He's writing a letter back to them. And he's reflecting on the time that he was with them. But he he shifts gears a little bit in verse 13. He moves from talking about how the gospel was delivered to them. How he proclaimed the gospel to them. To how the Thessalonians received the gospel. So in verses 1 through 12, he was focusing on how the gospel was uh, delivered to them. In verses 13 through 16, he's, uh, he's uh, emphasizing what they did with that gospel when, uh, when it came to them, how they received it. Remember, the Thessalonian believers are being tempted to doubt the gospel of Jesus because of people who are accusing Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, of being frauds or being uh, fakes. And so Paul defends his ministry among them, but he also wants to remind them of their own belief in the gospel and the change that it has made in their lives. And Paul's reminder here to them comes in the form of a thanksgiving. This is the second time we've seen Paul giving thanks in this letter to the Thessalonians. He, he reminds them of how they received the gospel, and he points to evidence That their faith is genuine by giving thanks to God. You see, the Thessalonians' genuine faith in the gospel moves Paul to give thanks because Paul knows that God is ultimately responsible for the faith of the Thessalonians. Paul gives thanks, therefore, to the God who is worthy of glory for the Thessalonians' salvation. In verses 13 through 16, and, and really, this Thanksgiving, I think, has a double purpose. One, it's simply to to give thanks to God, to praise Him for what He's done. But also, uh, Paul's purpose in these verses is to help bolster the Thessalonians' confidence in the gospel and their salvation. He wants this to serve as an encouragement to them to continue believing the gospel and and, and ignore what these uh, these people who are who are um, condemning. Paul and his companions to ignore them and and stay committed to Jesus Christ and the gospel message. Let me give you this main idea statement. God deserves thanks for our right belief in the gospel, leading to our suffering for the gospel. I think that's what Paul is teaching here in this passage, what God wants us to understand today. God deserves thanks for our right belief in the gospel, leading to our suffering for the gospel for the gospel. What we find in verses 13 through 16 is really a a snapshot of what it means to be a Christian. In the first part of verse 13, we see the centrality of belief or faith in the gospel of Jesus. We must believe the right things in order to be a Christian. Then at the end of verse 13, we see that this belief actually changes us because the gospel that we believe is at work inside of us. And then finally, in verses 14 through 16, we see one key result of saving faith, which provides evidence that we are genuine Christians or genuine Christians. Believers. So let's begin there in verse 13. Now the text says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And we'll stop right there for now. The first truth statement that I want you to, um, to, to remember today is this. Genuine believers welcome the gospel as the word of God. Genuine believers welcome the gospel as the word of God. In order to grasp Paul's point here, we need to understand a key phrase that Paul uses, the phrase word of God. And we see him use this phrase two times in verse 13. Now, it's tempting for me at this point just to start preaching about Scripture being the bedrock of our faith and give reasons why we believe that the Bible is God's word. But that's not exactly what Paul means by word of God here. Paul is not using the phrase word of God as a, as a synonym for, for scripture or, or what we would call the Bible. Notice, notice this other phrase there. He says, which you heard from us. This word of God that he's talking about came to the Thessalonians in the form of a spoken message, not in the form of written words. Now, they had the, the Old Testament there in the, in the synagogue. They would have scrolls written down. They could read from those. So, Paul's not referring to that. What was it that they heard from Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy? Well, they heard the gospel. They heard the good news of Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul said, Our gospel came to you. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said, They had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said that they shared with them the gospel of God. And in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, We proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So when Paul says they received and accepted this word of God, he's not saying that they received the written word of God, which at that time, again, consisted only of the Old Testament as the word of God. He's not saying that. Instead, he's saying they received the spoken message of the gospel of Jesus as the word of God. Now, of course, for us now, that gospel message has been written down in the New Testament, which affirms what the Old Testament teaches. And of course, the Old Testament is God's word. Paul's not saying that it's not. That's not his point here. Paul made clear in his second letter to Timothy that the Old Testament Scriptures are the Word of God when he said all Scripture is breathed out by God. But Paul's point here is that the good news that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah promised by God, that He is God in human flesh, that He is the Savior who offered His life as an acceptable sacrifice for sin and who rose up from the grave, this good news, this gospel message was received and accepted by the Thessalonians as the Word of God. And that is exactly what it is. And those who were discrediting Paul and his companions wanted the Thessalonian believers to reject the gospel merely as the words of men, specifically the words of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. But Paul reminds them that what they believed when he was with them is true. This gospel message of Jesus does not come from men, but it comes from God. This is God's plan of salvation, and it must be believed as such. You're not a Christian if you don't believe the gospel of Jesus is the word of God. But I want you to notice the way Paul describes their, their belief in this gospel, their faith in this gospel. He uses two different words in verse 13 to describe what they did with the gospel word of God. Now, some translations translate these two different Greek words with the same English word. And that's, that, that's not entirely accurate because it, it, doesn't, uh, it makes us miss the emphasis that Paul is making here. He says that they received the word of God and they accepted the gospel word of God. Whereas the first word deals with the intellectual acceptance of the gospel. The second word emphasizes their belief in the gospel. You can translate that second word um, as welcomed. They, They received it and they welcomed this gospel truth, this gospel message. In other words, they didn't just receive the gospel message as another belief system to add to other belief systems that they had heard about in the past. They welcomed this gospel message as the truth that it is. They didn't just agree with the gospel in their minds. They believed in their hearts that this was God's message of salvation to them. And therefore, Paul can call them believers. You see that in verse 13. He calls them believers, which means they were a part of God's redeemed people who would one day be delivered from God's wrath, as he said in chapter one, verse 10, and who would one day live with Jesus as he describes in chapter four, verses 13 through 18. I wonder today if you have welcomed the gospel of Jesus as the word of God. Have you welcomed it into your life as what it is? The Word of God. Have you believed in Jesus to save you from your sin? If you haven't, you can believe right now. You can place your faith in Jesus right now. That means to rely completely upon Jesus, to depend upon Him For the salvation of your soul. To forgive you of your sins. Tell God that you welcome the good news of Jesus. Tell God that your faith is now in Jesus to save you from your sin. And then tell someone who is a Christian about this choice to believe in Jesus. So that they can help you in your next steps as a believer. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, then give God thanks for your belief in the Gospel. Give Him thanksgiving. Give Him glory. If God did not awaken our dead hearts to faith in Jesus Christ, we would never be able to be saved. I mean, God gets all the credit for us welcoming the gospel as the word of God into our lives. We would never do that apart from His work inside of us. It's His grace. And so Paul encourages confidence in the Thessalonian believers by pointing to their welcome reception of the good news of Jesus. Perhaps we could say with the psalmist, who said in Psalm chapter 105, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, tell of all His wondrous works." Oh, that our hearts, as Christians, would overflow with thanksgiving for all that God has done. Paul encourages confidence in the Thessalonian believers by pointing to their welcome reception of the good news of Jesus. Genuine believers welcome the Gospel as the Word of God. But secondly, secondly, genuine believers experience the work of the Gospel in their lives. Genuine believers experience the work of the gospel in their lives. We see this at the end of verse 13, which says, which is at work in you believers. What's he referring to? Well, that that gospel, God working through his gospel word, it is at work in you believers. So we look at this whole verse, we learn this, the gospel comes from God through proclaimers of the gospel to people who need to believe the gospel. And once those people who need the gospel believe the gospel, then the gospel continues to work in their lives. We explored this truth in detail last week when we studied verse 12. The gospel, God's word is continually working in our lives as believers. It's not just something that changes where we go when we die. It's something that changes our lives right now. Listen, if God is not working in your life right now through the gospel, then you need to ask whether or not you have believed the gospel of God. Because God is at work in those uh, who have believed that his gospel is his word. God is at work in Christians. If The gospel is a lifeless set of facts in your life. then perhaps you've received them like a student would receive a history lesson or a geography lesson. You agree with the information, but it it makes no difference in your life. But when you welcome the gospel as the word of God, trusting in Jesus for salvation, God, through His word of the gospel, starts working in you, and He continues to work in you to make your way of living look more and more like Jesus. But We've got to remember and notice who ultimately is doing this work of transformation in us. It's God through his gospel. It's not us doing the work of transformation. The good news for us as believers is that we are not trying to be like Jesus on our own. The gospel, the word of God, God himself is that work in us, molding us and shaping us and changing us so that we will then do what verse 12 said, walk in a manner worthy of God. Listen to what Paul said to the to the church in Corinth. He said, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. We're being transformed in the image of the Son, but it's God who is doing the work. The gospel doesn't leave us the same. It transforms us into the image of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus, the Christ. The word of the gospel takes root in the life of a believer. And then from that root, it produces gospel fruit that we can see is evident. It's observable. James called Christians to to a life of holiness by pointing to this saving word, this saving gospel and its ability to produce righteousness in them. In James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, we find these words Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As Christians, we ought to be producing righteousness in our lives. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and then here's God's work, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Do you see what James is saying? An active word planted in us, resulting in the salvation of our souls and producing a life of righteousness. That is the mark of a genuine believer. So Paul here in verse 13 is saying to the Thessalonians, you received the gospel as the word of God. You welcomed it as the word of God. Now God is at work in you through his gospel word. Be encouraged and be confident in the gospel and your salvation and remember Because God is the one at work in us. God is deserving of thanksgiving. And so we constantly, Paul says, give thanks to God. Church, we should give thanks to God. We ought to give praise to God, not only for our salvation, where we know that we have eternal life one day, but we should give thanks as we look into our lives, as we see evidence that God is right now at work in us, putting away sin and producing holiness and righteousness. So genuine believers welcome the gospel as the word of God and genuine believers experience the work of the gospel in their lives. Now, now in this passage, Paul uh, points to a specific way in which the gospel is at work in our lives. And it's this, the Thessalonians are enduring suffering in the form of persecution for their gospel faith. This is evidence of the gospel's work in their life. They are enduring persecution. And so truth statement number three for us today is this. Genuine believers endure suffering as a result of the gospel working in their lives. Genuine believers endure suffering as a result of the gospel working in their lives. We see this in verses 14 through 16. Paul says in verse 14, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So here Paul compares the believers in Thessalonica to the believers in Judea. He compares the church in Thessalonica to the churches that were scattered around Judea. What's the comparison? Well, the Thessalonians are suffering as a result of their belief in Jesus, just like the Christians in Judea suffered for their belief in Jesus. And he takes the comparison a step further. The suffering for the Judean Christians and for the Thessalonian Christians came from their own countrymen. Judeans were persecuting the Judean Christians. Thessalonians were persecuting the Thessalonian Christians. Now, I keep using the word persecute here. The, 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 probably the most literal translation of that word there in verse 14 is suffering. It's to suffer. But we can use the word persecute because the context of verse, 15, uh, verse 14 makes clear that this suffering was a result of their belief in the gospel and the gospel being at work in them. You see, there are all kinds of sufferings, different kinds of sufferings in life. And both Christians and non Christians experience suffering. And some examples of the suffering that both Christians and non-Christians experience would be uh, the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or a broken relationship with someone. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus. Those are the those are kinds of sufferings are experienced by all people around the world. But there is a suffering that is unique to Christians. Suffering that comes as a direct result of being a believer in Jesus. And that's the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about here. The Thessalonian believers are suffering as a direct result of their faith in the gospel. Um, and, and then the gospel's ongoing work in them. So a direct result of them believing in Jesus. And then God working in their lives through the gospel message. Is that they are being persecuted. What's interesting here and maybe some would even say kind of crazy from a human perspective, is that Paul is not shocked by this. He's not going, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you're suffering for your faith in Jesus. No. In fact, it's the opposite. He actually points to their persecution as evidence that they are genuine believers in the gospel, that the gospel is genuinely at work in them. I mean, he says, which is at work in you believers for you're, you're suffering, the same thing like that, from your countrymen that the, the Judean Christians suffered from their countrymen. He, he's saying this, look, Thessalonians, do you want some proof that you are genuine believers, that the gospel is powerful and that it is at work in your life, changing your life? Do you want some proof of that? Well, here's the proof. The same thing is happening to you that happened to the believers in Judea. Persecution. And as Paul knew so well, persecution is a mark of a genuine uh, follower of Jesus. Because as Jesus told His disciples in John chapter 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If they keep My word, they will also keep yours. Jesus suffered. And so will those who believe in Him. But at this point, Paul appears to kind of go off on a little tangent. I don't mean that Disrespectfully, what he says in verse 15 and 16 is true, and it's the word of God. His mention of the Jews persecuting the Judean churches provides Paul with an opportunity to to vent some frustration concerning the Jews. And it was legitimate frustration, as we'll see in in these verses. But before we look at what maybe some would call call a rant by Paul. We need to understand that Paul doesn't hate the Jewish people. And let me give you four quick reasons why we w- would make sure we understand that, um, and why we could, can, can believe that Paul doesn't hate the Jewish people. Because he's going to say some pretty, pretty harsh things about the, the, the Jews in verses 15 and 16. But let me give you four quick reasons why we can say that Paul doesn't hate the Jews. First, he himself is a Jew. Paul is a Jew. He describes himself to the Philippian church this way circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. Never does Paul say that he is ashamed of his Jewish heritage. He is ashamed that he once persecuted the churches in Judea because he was choosing Judaism over Christianity before he was saved. But he's not ashamed of being a Jew. The second reason we can say that Paul does not hate the Jews is He desired for Jews to be saved. And listen, you don't desire for someone to be saved if you hate them. In fact, Paul desired for the Jews to be saved so much so that he uh, basically asked God, told God that he would go to hell if it meant that his Jewish brethren would be saved. Listen to his words from Romans chapter nine, verse three. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to. To the flesh. He loved them. He wanted them to be saved. Third, he knew that God still had a plan for the Jewish people. See, there would be a remnant, uh, Paul believed, who would believe in Jesus as the Messiah and would be saved. You can read about that in Romans, especially Romans chapter 11, where he speaks of Israel being included, accepted, grafted in again and, and saved. And then four, the fourth reason we can say that Paul doesn't hate the the Jews is this. He kept preaching to the Jews. Paul continued preaching to the Jews. Whenever he entered a city, he would always preach the gospel to the Jews first. The Thessalonians saw him do this in Thessalonica. He started out in the synagogue there preaching the gospel of Jesus before he was forced out. You can read about that in Acts chapter 17. So Paul doesn't hate the Jews. However, he does not shy away at all from speaking the truth about the Jews, specifically here, the Jews in Judea and their complete rebellion against the God that they claim to worship. He doesn't shy away from speaking about them. Very truthful. And condemning words. He lays out five indictments against the Jews in verse 15, which provides evidence of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And to reject Jesus as the Messiah is to reject God. The first indictment that he gives them there in verse 15 is this they killed the Lord Jesus. They killed the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul knows that it was the Romans who carried out the actual crucifixion. They were Roman soldiers, not Jews, who hammered the nails into Jesus's hands and feet. But he also knew that it was the Jews who arrested Jesus, tried Jesus, handed Jesus over to the Romans and yelled crucify him when Pilate tried to hand Jesus back to the Jews. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, we find these chilling words spoken by the Jews after Pilate tried to convince them that Jesus was innocent. And all the people answered. That's the Jewish crowd there. All the people answered. His blood be on us and on our children. Chilling words indeed. Paul's second indictment against them is that the Jews killed the prophets. The Jews killed the prophets. Paul could be referring to the Old Testament prophets, the Jewish people were definitely guilty of killing their own prophets that God had sent to them. You can read about that in Old Testament books and in the New Testament Gospels where Jesus condemned them for this part of their history. But I think here Paul is referring to the New Testament prophets. Now, we don't often think about there being prophets in the New Testament. That is after Jesus came to the earth. But the title prophet um, was used occasionally in Scripture to, to refer to some people Um, who were preachers of the gospel message of Jesus. For instance, um, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 34, uh, we find Jesus saying these words. And notice the future tense. He's not talking about past Old Testament prophets here. He says, therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Well, who might some of these New Testament prophets be who were killed by the Jews? Well, let me give you two. Think of Stephen from Acts chapter 7, who upon preaching the gospel of Jesus was stoned to death by the Jews. Or think of James in Acts chapter 12, who was killed by the Jews for preaching the gospel. Both of these men killed because they were followers of Jesus. Now, ironically, Paul was one of the Judean Jews behind the killing of Stephen, but praise God. He was saved. The third indictment Paul uh, issues against the Jews is this. The Jews drove out Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. See those words there. Who drove us out, he says. Now, if he's referring to the Jews in general, he could be referring um, either to the Jews there in Thessalonica who, who drove them out of the synagogue and then drove them out of town. Or he could be referring to all the Jews in all the cities that he had visited up to that point where he was continually um, harassed by them. If he's referring specifically to the Jews in Judea, he could be thinking back to the time soon after his conversion where um, he faced opposition from Jews both in Damascus and in Jerusalem. But either way, Paul has personally experienced the animosity of the Jews toward him. His fourth indictment is this. The Jews displease God. That's never something that you want to be accused of. We could probably say that that's an understatement by Paul. The Jews at this point are enemies of God. They're rejecting the Messiah. They're rejecting Jesus. They reject the Gospel as the Word of God. How sad that those through whom the Messiah came rejected the One that they waited so long to see. I think we must be careful in our consideration of Israel when it comes to politics and end time prophecy that we don't minimize the necessity of faith in Jesus for salvation. We don't want the fact that just because the Jews were God's chosen people in the Old Testament and just because they claim to worship the one true God now and just because some of them will trust in Jesus and be saved. We don't want those things to cause us to think that just somehow all Jews are just automatically saved and and, and are friends of God. Jews who reject Jesus are just like anyone else who rejects Jesus. It doesn't mean we hate them. It means we love them and we want to share the gospel with them. Until they follow Jesus, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. God is not happy with them. Paul says they are displeasing God. And as we'll see in a moment, they are headed towards the wrath of God. Of God. Paul's fifth indictment here is that they oppose all mankind. The Jews oppose all mankind. This is a strong statement by Paul, but he explains what he means at the beginning of verse 16, where he says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. They oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. You see, the worst thing that you could do to to people is to hinder them from hearing the message of the gospel, to hinder them from being saved. And Paul says that's exactly what the Jews are doing. One of the major roadblocks keeping the Jews from believing the gospel of Jesus was its claim, is its claim that salvation was a free gift to Jew and Gentile was not dependent at all on adherence to the Jewish law. You see, the Jews weren't against preaching to the Gentiles. In fact, we're going to read a, a, a verse in just a minute from um, where Jesus is talking about the, the preaching by the, by the Jews to other people in other places. They weren't against preaching to the Gentiles. What they were against was preaching to the Gentiles that they could be saved simply by faith in Jesus instead of by becoming a Jew. They wanted the Gentiles to be converted, but they wanted them to be converted to Judaism, not to Christianity. Jesus condemned the scribes and Pharisees uh, for their lack of love for others when he said this in Matthew chapter 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So The Jews were not interested in the nations becoming worshipers of God. They were only interested in the nations becoming adherents to the set of rules they themselves couldn't keep. By opposing Jesus as the savior of the world, they were opposing all the peoples of the world. So those are Paul's five indictments against the Jews. But he's not quite finished with them yet. He says in the middle of verse 16, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Paul is saying the Jews are filling up or heaping up is another way you could say that. Their sins until they've reached the limit. This is similar to what Jesus said again in Matthew chapter 23 concerning the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said this, Fill up then... The measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Throughout Scripture, we see God use this language of allowing people to sin up until a a certain point before pouring out His punishment on them. You can think about it like a a measuring cup. Once, Once the sin of a people reaches the mark, that God has determined, then He pours out on them His wrath, which has been building with every sin that they have committed. And God's wrath is exactly where Paul turns to at the end of verse 16. He says, but wrath has come upon them at last. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now, while it may appear that Paul is talking about some punishment which had already come upon the Jews, he probably here is referring to God's future wrath on them, which is so certain that he can speak about it as though it has already happened. You see, just as eternity with God is certain for those who have been saved, eternity separated from God is certain. For those who reject the gospel of Jesus, for those who die in their sin. This is the second time in this letter that Paul has mentioned God's wrath and it won't be the last. In chapter one, verse two, Paul said these words, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And here at the end of towards the end of chapter two, he says, but wrath has come upon them at last. The wrath of God is not a popular topic. It's not at all. I was watching a TV show the other day and there were two characters and they were having a discussion about God. One said that she believed in God and the other said that she really didn't believe in God. And the one who said she didn't believe in God, she she gave some reasoning for that. And the reason was that she had heard that God was wrathful, that he was full of wrath, and she just... She said that she just couldn't accept that. She wasn't okay with it. She wasn't fine with God being wrathful. However, however, she did say that she had heard one time that God is love. And she said, now that is the kind of God that I could believe in. Now, those were just characters in a TV show, but their script was written by real people who were reflecting in their script the thoughts of many in our society when it comes to God. And I would go a little bit further and say they weren't just reflecting, but their intentions are to shape culture and to shape our thoughts about God. See, people are fine with God being a loving God, but they are not fine with God being a wrathful God. Friends. First, God is who he says he is, regardless of whether or not you or I or anyone else likes it or not. I mean, God is who He says He is. We can be okay with that or not okay with that, but it doesn't change who God is. God is who He says He is. But secondly, the Bible says that God is both. He pours out His wrath on sin, which means He pours out His wrath on those who don't belong to Him, and He pours out His saving love on those who do belong to Him. So how can God be wrathful and loving at the same time? Go to the cross. At the cross, we see God pouring out His wrath upon sin, but at the same time, we see His love as His own Son takes our place and endures God's wrath on our behalf. And all who belong to Him escape His wrath and receive eternal life through Jesus' death in their place. Maybe you're asking, well, how do you know whether or not you belong to him? That's a good question. Let's look at the difference between the people in this letter who will be delivered from the wrath of God and those who will experience the wrath of God. The Thessalonian believers believed that the gospel of Jesus was the word of God and experienced the working of the gospel in them, which meant persecution now, but deliverance from God's wrath in the future. That was the believers, those who belong to God. On the other hand, the Jews, Paul refers to in verses 14 through 16, rejected the gospel of Jesus, which meant escaping from suffering for Jesus now, but experiencing God's wrath in the future. See the difference between those who belong to God and those who don't is what we do with the gospel of Jesus What we do with this gospel. Do we believe that Jesus is the promised one sent from God to bear God's wrath on our behalf through his death on the cross? Or do we not believe that about Jesus? Have you welcomed the gospel as the word of God and experienced the working of the gospel in your life through a willingness to consider Jesus worthy of your life, even if it means suffering for his sake? Have you believed this gospel and has it changed you? The gospel is a matter of life and death. The gospel is a matter of heaven and hell. Faith in Jesus or lack of faith in Jesus is what separates the saved from the unsaved. So my question for us today is this. Do you have genuine gospel faith today? Do you have genuine gospel faith? But as we close, let's not lose sight of, of Paul. what Paul is saying here. What, what's he doing in these verses? He is encouraging confidence in the Thessalonians that their faith is real. He, he, he's encouraging them. By, by pointing to the fact that, hey, the, the fact that you have, have, are suffering for Jesus is evidence that the gospel is at work in you. And, and the fact that the gospel is at work in you is, is evidence that you have believed in Jesus. You have genuine gospel faith. Paul points to the genuineness of the gospel faith of the Thessalonians by pointing to their belief in the gospel and the gospel's work in their lives that's leading them to endure persecution. Just like other believers in other places. Listen, enduring persecution from enemies of the gospel provides evidence of right belief concerning the message of the gospel. Enduring persecution from enemies of the gospel provides evidence of right belief concerning the message of the gospel. Church, we must believe that the gospel is the word of God. And when we do, this gospel actively enables us to endure suffering. For the cause of Christ. And when this persecution comes our way. We don't get angry. We don't get angry at God. And we really don't get angry at those who are doing the persecution. We might speak truthful things about them as Paul does here. About the Jews. But we still love them. We want them to be saved. We're also not angry at God. When persecution comes our way. In fact, instead of being angry, we do what Paul does here. He's giving thanks. This isn't a, a, a gloomy passage. Remember what, how he starts it off in verse 13. We give thanks to God constantly for this. That you have believed the gospel, that the gospel is at work in you, and that now you're being persecuted for the sake of Christ. We give thanks to God, church, We give thanks to God who loved us enough to give us the privilege of being participants in the sufferings of Christ until that day when we are participants with Him in His glory. Church, God is worthy of our thanksgiving. So let's give thanks to God for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For our belief in the gospel. For the work of the gospel in our lives. And even for the persecution that may come our way as a result of God's gospel being at work in us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we prayed at the beginning, your word is active. This gospel is active in our lives. And we pray, Father, right now that your gospel would be at work in us. Right now, in this moment, in every single day of our lives, we want your gospel to be active in us. Father, when your gospel is active in us, we're going to live lives of holiness. And we're going to tell other people the good news of Jesus. And not everybody is going to like that. And we may suffer for it. We may endure persecution as a result of it. But, Father, even in the midst of that, we give you thanks. Father, for your great salvation in our lives. Father, if there's someone today who has never welcomed the Gospel message into their lives, Father, I pray that they would realize that You are a God who pours out wrath on all who fail to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Father, Your wrath is real, but Your love is real too. You displayed it on Calvary's cross. So Father, I pray if there's someone who has not... Received and welcomed the Gospel message. Father, I pray that today they would believe that Jesus is Your Son. That He died for their sin. That He rose up from the grave. And that He lives forever. And one day He will return. And He will gather all the saved. All those who belong to Him. All those who have welcomed His Gospel message. He will gather them to live with with Him forever. Father, I pray that if there's someone who's not believed that, that Lord, today they would believe this gospel message. They would welcome it into their hearts, into their lives. Father, thank You for the gospel. We give You the praise and the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.